your current major research has been on censorship in South Africa. Yeah. Could you explain what censorship is and, and then we'll move on to South Africa? So one of the things is that you've got to be quite careful about using the word censorship, I think. People use it loosely to, to refer to any, any attempt to control or silence or regulate what people say in the public domain. If I say to you, look, you know, I think you should, you should be quiet at this point. You've said enough. People will say, oh, you're censoring him. That's, that's not fair, not right. I think out of respect for the people who suffered under real censorship regimes, we need to be a bit more precise about how we use the word censorship. And I would say, yes, although there are many ways in which media journalists, all sorts of people control what other people say, censorship really must involve a state authority, so some other governmental or state authority, curbing public speech or writing with the threat of punishment. So I, I would say something like that about the, the conditions that are necessary for something to be really censorship proper. So, you know, when I, when I simply try to shut you up, I'm not censoring you. I'm just shutting you up because, I'm, A, I'm not a state authority, and, B, I haven't got any kind of major punitive measure backing what I'm, what I'm doing. So, yeah, when we talk about censorship, I would, I would want to keep it to that fairly narrower sense rather than just the looser general sense of controlling what people say. And what interested you in censorship? I've always been interested in the intersection between the state and what we can call the Republic of Letters, the, the literary culture of a particular period. And to that extent, I mean, I suppose it's, a, it's about, I've been interested in the relationship between literature and politics, if you wanted to put it as, as broadly as that. But the things that interest me in this is also, it's, it's broader, it's broader than simply censorship. So that for, you know, when you, when you think about the world we live in now, forms like the novel survive really uh, because commercial publishers can make money out of it. It's a market-driven cultural product, the novel. Poetry is, it's a little bit trickier for poetry and poets to survive commercially. There are publishers who make a go at it. Faber and Faber, for instance, in, in the UK is probably one of them, is, is the, leading, the leading poetry publisher and has been for a long time. But a lot of poetry and smaller publishing outfits get a lot of support from the Arts Council. So there's a lot of state support for certain forms of artistic and literary endeavour that need state support. And, that, and that's been going on really since the mid-20th century when, when there was a, a, new, a new relationship was struck up between the state and the, the sphere of culture, if you like, and the idea that states should sponsor and support certain cultural activities and, and ensure that they can survive because the market mechanism won't ensure that they survive. So uh, there's all sorts of ways in which state, the state gets involved. If you take a, a smaller society like Norway, for instance, where the national language or the, the two national languages, because it's a big dispute in Norway, but the national language is um, seen on a global scale, a, a minority language. Again, the state actually supports a lot of literary activity by ensuring that works that, again, a particular committee decides are significant literary works for Norwegian culture, that a copy, and this is about a thousand copies, I think it involves, a copy of each work is bought by the public libraries. 
in Norway, so that you, a publisher can, can be guaranteed, if you like, the sale of a thousand copies, which makes it commercially viable. So there's all, all sorts of forms of state patronage that continue today in the state. But of course, the state's relationship to the sphere of literature has, has not always been positive and enabling. It's also been positively disabling. The most obvious form of that is, is state censorship, which has a long history. And I'm, I'm interested in that long history, but I've, I've worked mainly, mainly on, the, on the 20th century. But the, the project that I'm currently interested in, and the book that I've just finished, called The Literature Police, focuses on South Africa. And it, and it focuses largely on South Africa because there's a, an extremely odd and surprising linkage between questions of literature and censorship. Whereas we would normally think that uh, censorship is, as it were, out to curb literature in South Africa, the situation was strangely complicated. And it's that, that strangeness that, that got me interested. And how did censorship emerge in South Africa? So the modern, the modern South African state is a 20th century invention dating back to 1910. And like most colonial states at that point, there had always been forms of censorship, the control of public speech and writing, representations, drama and so on. In the 1930s, the Union of South Africa, as it was then called, which was the racially segregated dominion of the British Empire, in the early 1930s, the first official statutory board of censors was set up. And it uh, was initially, as the date might give away, initially set up mainly to, to deal with film, which was a new, a new thing. And uh, various states around the world were, were worried about the consequences of film in all sorts of ways of what it might do to the society. And so they, they set up this board. It actually dealt with film and with what was called public entertainment, basically drama, theatre. But very quickly, its powers were expanded to cover imported books as well. So internally or domestically published books, of which South Africa has very, very developed and complicated because it's a multilingual society, publishing industry, internally at, at that time. All, all those books were, were just covered by the common law. So there was no system of internal censorship. There was only for imported books and for film that there was a system of censorship. So that was from, from the mid-1930s. Um, and then in the course of the 1940s and 1950s, various church groups, primarily Afrikaner church groups, were eager for the government to set up a system that controlled internally produced books as well. And in the 1950s, the government set up a commission to look into the feasibility study of this, as it were, and they published a report. And the report was published more or less at the same time that H.F. Favut, who was the uh, who became the prime minister of uh, apartheid South Africa, and was is the figure often associated with being the the architect of grand apartheid. H.F. Favut, the report on censorship coincided with the beginning of his period as prime minister government didn't do much about it. And then uh, you had the Sharpeville atrocities in 1960 and all the controversies that surrounded that, and which was followed by a government clampdown, which included introducing a system of internal censorship. So that in 1963, for the first time, a board of censors was set up to vet internally produced books as well as imported books and film and theatre. 
So that was what began in 1963. So what we, you know, my book is called The Literature Police, Apartheid Censorship and Its Cultural Consequences. The apartheid censorship system effectively began in 1963, but there had been the system in place before that. And who were the first censors and who appointed them? This is really gets to the nub of the project and why I've written a book that is both about literature and about censorship, which, although people think that there's kind of natural connection between the two. It's actually not, not so obvious as to what the connection is between, you know, the censorship is largely a, a topic for political study and investigation. So what's a literary person got to do with censorship, apart from the fact that some literary books are banned? And is there anything interesting that you can say about censorship from a literary point of view? My expectation was not. And when I first went into the archives, which was really not at all for any academic reasons, just curiosity is just to find out a little bit more about them and to have a look at some censorship reports which was in the, the late 1990s when I, I just learned I was going back to South Africa quite regularly and I just learned that the archives had been officially opened so South Africa had its first democratic elections in 1994 uh, in 1996 the the old censorship archives were officially opened I mean there's there's a 20-year rule you, you have automatic access to things that are 20 years old and the whole project really began because I went into this archive, started to find some of the reports. It was a very complicated collection of things to look at because things were rather disparate and disorganized. But to my surprise, I suddenly started to make the connection between certain reports and uh, who the censors were. And I had expected the censors to be school teachers, ex-policemen, those kinds of people. And it's also interesting, I think, that broadly speaking, we all think that, that censors will be stupid people, people who are somehow or other the equivalent of intellectual thugs. And I was rather shocked to discover that this was not the case. Sure, there were plenty of people that might fit the standard idea of the censorship of the censor in this in the South African system, but a lot of the censors were leading literary academics, mainly but not exclusively Afrikaners, plenty of English speakers as well. Of course, largely white, but also, again, somewhat surprisingly, not exclusively white, which also surprised me. And more perversely, not only was it leading literary academics, but there were some major writers, poets, and so on. So this immediately created a huge problem. And a question for me is to, well, why, why did these people get there? Why were these people running the system? And that then led me to do much more research, to start to investigate the system right the way back to its beginnings in the 1930s, as so I've just gone through that history to the 1960s. And that research took me back to a particular figure within Afrikaans literary culture of the, of the 20th century, the leading and major Afrikaans poet of the 20th century called Enpier van Weg Lowe, who is a figure in Afrikaans literary culture with the stature of W.B. Yeats. He has that kind of prestige and importance. And he was also an extremely inventive, interesting, experimental poet. And the reason I was taken back to him is that when these church groups were lobbying to have internal censorship introduced in, in South Africa in the 1940s and 50s, he wrote vociferously against this and fought actively, along with many other 
people who supported his cause against the introduction of any internal form of censorship. Primarily, it has to be said because he was worried about what this would do for the kind of Afrikaans literature that he wanted to see emerging, a more modern, radical, and, and indeed critical Afrikaans literature. He lost that battle. To, as I said, you know, after Sharpeville, etc., the government was determined to introduce a censorship regime. And as a consequence of that, and because he was associated with a group of uh, Afrikaner literary intellectuals who were noisy, critical, outspoken, the government effectively said, OK, well, we are introducing the system. You, this particular faction of Afrikaans writers led by NPF and Vaiklow, who I called the folk avant-garde, you can run it. Favekloh saw this as a kind of victory for all of South African literatures as he, uh, as he understood them. But in fact, quite clearly, it was, from the government's point of view, a strategy of co-optation. They were trying to buy off this outspoken group. And so it was partly as a consequence of that that the first chief censor was a man called Gerrit Decker, who was a very close ally and supporter of Favekloh. Uh, who shared his views on a modern Afrikaans literature and was a leading Afrikaner literary academic, then very elderly. And he had written the most, the first and most important, initially most important history of, of Afrikaans literature. He became the first chief censor. And he then surrounded himself with a group of younger, in fact, former students of his who came to dominate the system. And because of the links to Van Veik Lowe, and because of the position that they took, they set themselves up with the mission, again, somewhat perversely, to protect literature. They saw themselves as the guardians, as it were, of the literary, or the guardians of, specifically also, the Republic of Letters, the idea that, they, that writers must be given a kind of autonomy from any kind of church, state, political authority to say and do what they like. They saw themselves as wanting to protect this the space of the literary in that sense. So once I'd mapped out that history and got that in my mind, I realized that there was, first of all, a much more complex story to be told about the history of apartheid censorship and its cultural consequences. But secondly, I also realized that there was a connection between a series of questions that I'd had definitely since my late teens, the things that had got me interested in literary studies, why I'm doing the work I do now, as well as a series of questions that had dominated the field of, of literary theory in the 20th century to do with the fundamental question, what is literature? So if these people saw themselves as protecting literature, what did they think literature was? And also, manifestly, their commitment to defending literature was hopelessly compromised, hopelessly erratic, so that, for instance, you will find that one of Nadine Gordimer's novels, you know, The Conservationist, which, is, which the censors recognize as politically controversial, was let through. But another one, equally well written, if you want to put it in those terms, equally interesting, uh, The Late Bourgeois World, was banned. You find that one collection of poetry by an important black South African poet, Ingopele Maringoane, Africa My Beginning, is banned. But another one, by an equally important black South African poet, Mongane Wallace Erote, Yakal Nkomo, is passed. 
So, the, you know, these decisions are just simply on the record of what was passed and what was banned, uh, erratic, eccentric, unpredictable. And then I started to recognize that because of this perversity, suddenly the kinds of theoretical problems that I'd been interested in and working on, and the, th the kinds of questions that really had driven me to be interested in things like the publishing industry, who publishes things, who decides that this is literature and they want to promote it in that way and so on and so forth, those kind of things. Suddenly this was at the heart of the censorship system as well. And that the eccentricity of their decisions wasn't, as it were, simply politically motivated or the kind of obvious or stupid, for that matter, just kind of censors as kind of censorious bureaucrats who just make stupid decisions. They, they were, neither of these things were fully explained what was going on, but rather what helped to explain what was going on was the particular idea of literature that they had. And so that they would decide, because of the idea of literature that they had, that this was pornography, whereas this was literature, so that the literature would get let through. This was seditious propaganda, and this was literature, so the seditious propaganda would get banned. So they are constantly making these kinds of judgments, and the difficulties of those sorts of judgments, the theoretical problems associated with where do you draw the boundary line between literature and non-literature, were at the heart of the, of the system. So suddenly this theoretical problem and my interest in institutions in the modern state came together uh, in a way that I didn't expect and was somewhat surprised. Because the conclusion that a lot of the theoretical work done in the late 20th century from the 1970s on, the conclusion was that, and, and this also fit, fitted with a lot of my sort of intuitive sense of why, why literature was attractive and interesting to study, that literature is something we can never settle and define once and for all that actually maybe one of the things that's most interesting about it is a kind of anarchic lawlessness. One of its basic rules seems to be to break all the rules, not only of all other forms of public discourse, so that you can suddenly start to talk about things that, in a novel, you can suddenly talk about things that were deemed to be only legitimate within pornography, and that was, in fact, not legitimate. It was, it was illegitimate speech, but you would make that, or, or, or writing, you would make that legitimate by, by putting it into a novel and making it part of literature. So those kinds of rules, you'd be breaking those sorts of taboos to do with what you can say. But also, equally, you're constantly breaking the rules and norms and conventions of literature that's built into it. So that we, we can sometimes find ourselves encountering a work that we just can't make head or tail of. First time, say, somebody reads Beckett's The Unnameable, it just doesn't look like anything that you've read before, whether literature or not literature. It doesn't look like a novel, but it also doesn't look like a political treatise or just strange, and you don't know what to make of it. But that's also not just something that's an interesting part of cultural history and isn't literature always new and always changing. It's actually a radical part of what literature does as a form of public discourse, so that it, it's constantly testing the limits of what you think literature is. So those kinds of problems, and this is amply demonstrated by the copious reports that the censors wrote were, were at the heart of the censorship system. And of course when you put that in the context of a society that is a, of course, radically divided but also one that is multicultural, then the questions of who 
decides what constitutes literature and what doesn't gain a particular force and interest. Did their conception of what constituted literature change over time? Their conception of literature was often internally contested, that's one thing. Again, these problems of what is literature, they struggled with it themselves. They didn't have a consensus. That was the false assumption on which the entire project of trying to protect literature perversely from within the system was based, that, that actually that they could know what it was, that there would be a consensus. They did not have a consensus about literature. Sure, they had moments of consensus and there were easier cases than others, but under pressure the consensus was always very fragile. That's the one thing. And then also, I think partly because a generation of literary academics and writers, a single generation in many ways of literary academics and writers, largely got hold of the system, the idea that they had of literature didn't change that radically. And they worked with, uh, with assumptions about the nature of the literary that, that a lot of people still share today, and certainly shared in the late 20th century. For instance, they would have the idea that literary language must be some, somehow very clearly identifiable as a special form of language, that what goes on within literary language or within poetic language doesn't go on in ordinary language that there's a, there's a sharp divide which we can, we can all know and be clear about. So that, for instance, in genuine poems, don't get statements about the world. They don't make those kinds of claims. That's a highly disputed conception of poetic language, which a number of theorists and certainly a number of poets have, have disputed by putting bold statements into their poems. On the other hand, they also worked with assumptions that, far from being a narrow parochial kind of national concern that you know a, a great literature is both national and universal you know this is again a standard going right, right way back to aristotle a standard way of thinking about what distinguishes between the kinds of truths that you can find in literature and say in history that the the truths in literature are somehow universal whereas the ones in history are somehow particular that again is a highly, for a long time, has been a highly controversial and disputed idea about what literature can do. And they, they held to that view. Those views led to all sorts of eccentric readings and assumptions where they would pass one collection of short stories because they thought it was, it was in some sense universal. And they would, they would ban others because they thought this was too, too targeted to South Africa, too t specifically satirical about this or that government minister or whatever. They would make those sorts of sorts of judgments. Was there a level of self-awareness that they were part of the state apparatus? Oh yeah, I mean they knew. I, I also managed to interview some of them. They, they've all started to, to die off now, just in recent years. I mean they, they, were, they were all pretty elderly when I interviewed them, but I interviewed a, a few. They were very clearly aware of, of the fact that they were in the system. I mean they, they did have the view that they were doing what they were doing was was compromised, but you know the standard view was what else could you do? You know you needed to do something that would protect literature and so on and so forth. So they they had these kinds of self understandings of what they were doing, and there's also one perhaps one good bit of non not just from interviews but actually from the archival evidence was one there's one great moment I found in the 1960s where one of the uh, censors who was a leading uh, professor of political philosophy at the University of Cape Town, a man called A.H. Murray, who um, was a long-serving member of the censorship system, 
from the 1960s right the way through to the 1980s. So there was a remarkable consistency to the people who were acceptable to the regime. I just came across at one point Murray commenting in a census report, actually to do with the the decision to ban the really important now constitutional lawyer, ANC activist, L.B. Sachs, who's, who's a constitutional court judge in, in South Africa now, they banned his first autobiographical work, The Diary of L.B. Sachs, about his time in prison in the 1960s. And in, in the process of the deliberations about that book, A.H. Murray comments, if we ban this, we, we really run the risk of somebody in the future coming along and looking over these archives and saying that we only banned things for political reasons. And of course, uh, surprise, surprise, somebody did come along and somebody did have that thought, precisely. <laughs> so they did anticipate and they knew what they, what they were doing. Having said that, all, their docu all the documents that they were producing, of which most of them have survived in the archives, and the extraordinarily rich archival deposit, as it were, left behind, all their documents were secret. Those actual reports and so on were not publicly known. Did these reports take the form of scholarly criticism? Then? That was the other thing that surprised me. I mean, that was that was got me involved in the project was that I expected a censor to be a censorious bureaucrat. That's what you you think, or somebody who's just mechanically following the law. And yet, I found myself reading some of these reports that were really just extended exercises in literary criticism. You know, sometimes pretty good literary criticism, not all, always, but certainly a lot of it, you know, by more interesting figures, you know, so, so for instance, Herod Decker's reports in the 1960s, extremely careful, carefully argued, critical reports, where really the essence of the whole report is, has got nothing to do with the law. There are hardly any references to the details of the law, hardly, hardly any references to the act, but everything to do with, is this a great novel or not? And this leads to some very, very strange, strange outcomes. They only just managed to reach a consensus finally to ban Nadine Gordimer's late bourgeois world, for instance. But somewhat perversely, because of their rather aestheticist, high-minded notions about the literary being a special kind of writing where the, the rules of ordinary language didn't apply, they somewhat perversely banned late bourgeois world because it was a great novel, according to their own criteria of what greatness constituted, which meant that, say for instance, on the issues of making the novels partly about a group of white revolutionaries who, who started the sabotage campaign, because of the, the naturalness of the literary style, the power, as it were, and the effectiveness of the literary style, it's going to naturalize people's views on readers will be will will take it for totally as natural that you can that, that making making bombs and so on and indeed also interracial sex will be completely naturalized people will be seduced by the power of the writing so it's so in, in a perverse way late bourgeois world gets banned because it's a great novel and in that way it'll seduce people into accepting say interracial sex or bomb making as a as a natural activity so you know extremely strange and eccentric. So going back to the title of your book, mm. what damage did this have? What cultural damage did this have to South Africa? So the political damage that the censorship system made you know, is, is indisputable and huge and obvious. I mean, they simply banned everything that was a communist, everything that emanated from the ANC, 
everything that was against the regime politically. So politically, categorical, obvious damage. Culturally, equally, massive damage, but not so obvious. So yes, there was the, the obvious damage of certain books by certain authors were banned and suppressed. But less obviously, because of the perversity of the decisions, in some ways, you know, as, as one black writer once commented in, in the 1980s, banning, for instance, gave some writers a sense of, an easy sense of having achieved something, which was maybe problematic because maybe they were just achieving some things on the terms of the state. And that, that maybe the getting banned wasn't the badge of honour that, that everybody thought it was, although that, that was certainly the standard view. At the same time, they, they let through and passed works that were politically engaged, undoubtedly by interventionist writers, and that affected their reputation, the fact that they weren't banned. So, and they, you know, that would, that would be applied to, say, someone like, like J.M. Kutzir. All, th all three of the novels that they scrutinised, Life and Times of Michael Kay, uh, In the Heart of the Country, Waiting for the Barbarians, were, were let through. And that affected people's perceptions of Kutzir, that maybe he wasn't the important interventionist writer that some people, including me, claimed he was, because he wasn't banned. So, both by letting certain writers through and by banning others, there were, there were all sorts of unexpected kinds of cultural damage wreaked. And, and the, the main thing that the thing reveals is that when you've got a bunch of government-appointed literary professors and writers deciding what constitutes literature and what doesn't, you end up with these sorts of absurd outcomes, the consequences of which are only damaging, as opposed to letting literature remain part of the public debate and let those disputes all take place in the open. Dr. McDonald, thank you. Pleasure.